Welcome to Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Patty. And I'm Trisha. This week we're starting season eight with Terror of the Autons. We'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions, the villains, and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. Uh, we would also love to hear your thoughts on the story. So in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team. That's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. Uh, we actually have an email from one of our listeners uh, who recently got into the podcast, uh, Fred Williams. Uh, so Fred said that he saw us on Facebook and he's been binge-watching Classic Who from the beginning. He found our podcast and he's just got on to part two of Dalek's Master Plan. So Fred, get ready for that slog. <laughs> um he also gave us a very interesting trivia note because do you remember when we discussed the Romans, we mm. talked about the very um, campy way that Nero was portrayed? Yeah. Uh, so he said that Carrion Cleo uh, was released a month before the Romans aired. So he feels that that might have affected the tone of Nero's portrayal and the comedic elements of the chase sequences. Yeah. Which, which is actually a very good shout because that is uh, Julius Caesar. And it's Kenneth Williams as Julius Caesar. And like, I love Kenneth Williams. And it's just funny to watch him do his thing. Um, and he just told us like, that he was a baby around the time of Unearthly Child. And he's vague memories of the Troughton era. But he remembers this current era a lot more clearly. So he, once he gets here, he'll be able to uh, watch along with us. <laughs> so Fred, thank you very much for your email. And also, as well as always, thanks to Dan and Paul from Half Measures for always shouting out about us at our, at our social media. And one of their listeners, Fred Tadaro, who voices Starscream in the Transformers franchise on Netflix at the moment, also liked us. So, hi, Fred. <laughs> and hi, Frank. <laughs> hi, Fred and Frank. Two Fs. <laughs> hi, guys. Hi. So, that's enough of my inane natter at the start. Now, for my inane natter in the, uh, the next part of the start. So, for the story summary. So, ready? Yep. Episode 1. At the International Circus, things are progressing as normal with guests filling in to witness the various spectacles. The manager of the circus, Luigi Rossini, is doing his rounds when he hears a strange wheezing sound fill the air and he sees a horse box van materialise from thin air. He goes to investigate it and encounters its occupant, a stern-faced and darkly dressed man who addresses himself as the master. Thinking that he is auditioning, Rossini tells him that he has no need of a magician, but the master says that he has need of him addressing him by his actual name of Lou Russell. Russell is taken aback and drops his fake Italian accent and goes to attack him, but the master stops him with a hypnotizing stare and orders him to follow. They make their way to the aerospace facility, where Russell deals with the guard whilst the master takes something from a display case. In the unit HQ, the doctor is working on a component from the TARDIS, which doesn't seem to be going overly well when he hears a knock on the door. A timid young woman comes in and he tells her not today, which seems to confuse her. Suddenly, the apparatus he uses starts to billow smoke, and the young woman grabs a fire extinguisher and uses it to quench the smoke. The doctor berates her for her interference, saying that the smoke is a byproduct of a process called steady-state micro-welding, and that he has now been set back three months. He then goes back to work, but when he notices her staying, he tells her that he doesn't want any tea. She tells him that she isn't the tea lady, and introduces herself as Josephine Grant, Joe for short, and informs him that she has been sent by the brigadier to be his new assistant. The doctor seems displeased by the idea and says that despite her extensive resume as a fully qualified unit agent, what he really needs is a scientist. He then goes back to work, but she shows him a document given to her by the brigadier detailing a theft at the National Space Museum. The item stolen was a nesting sphere, which was unknown from unit for a special display in the museum. 
The doctor gives out about the brigadier's foolishness in giving it to the museum and tells Joe that the spear is incredibly dangerous. Together they wonder who would want to steal it and why. At the Beacon Hill radio telescope facility, the master arrives at the control room and dispatches the technician overseeing the equipment with a strange electronic wand-like device. He then hooks up the nesting sphere to the broadcast equipment and sends a signal into space, which seems to reactivate the dormant sphere. The unusual activity is noticed by the technician's supervisor, Phillips, who arrives at the control room, but he falls under the hypnotic gaze of the master. Back at Unit HQ, the doctor demands that a scientist of Liz's caliber be assigned to him, but the brigadier informs him that according to Liz, all he needed was someone to pass him his test tubes and tell him how brilliant he is, a role that he says Joe is more than capable of fulfilling. The brigadier also informs him that she has relatives in positions of authority and reassigning her may be difficult, but he will do as the doctor requests, but insists that the doctor be the one to inform her. Joe arrives and informs him that there is still no trace of the sphere. The doctor attempts to break the news to her, but can't quite bring himself to do it. She then informs him of a message from Captain Yates, who reported in about the strange activity at Beacon Hill, and the doctor says that they must go to check it out. The doctor goes to investigate the control room whilst the Yates leads the Brigadier and Joe to meet the facility director. As the doctor goes into the control room, he hears a, the sound of a materialising TARDIS, but instead of the ship, he sees a figure dressed as an English banker. The doctor recognises him as a fellow Time Lord and asks what he is doing there. The Time Lord informs him about the Master, mentioning the history between the two renegade Time Lords and saying that if they meet, then the Master will most likely try to kill him. The Doctor seems confident in his ability to beat the Master, but the Time Lord warns him about being overconfident and points out a booby trap that was awaiting anyone that tried to enter the control room. He then disappears when the Doctor asks for help in disabling it, but the Doctor manages to deactivate it. Yates and the Director arrive, who tells him about the disappearance of the Technician and Phillips. The Doctor then notices the Technician's half-eaten lunch and opens his lunchbox to see the miniaturised corpse of the Technician inside. Back at the Doctor's lab, Joe asks about the Nestine, and the Doctor brings her up to speed on what they are. Yates says that unit will be ready for them if they return, but the Doctor informs him that they already have, using the radio telescope to reactivate the sphere. The Brigadier arrives and says they need to find the sphere urgently, and the Doctor suggests searching all plastic-producing factories. Joe goes to make a list of the ones in the surrounding area, whilst the Yates goes to organise search parties. The Doctor then informs the Brigadier about the Master and his allegiance with the Nestine. At a plastics factory... The master, posing as an army colonel by the name of Masters, is in the office of the factory owner, Rex Farrell, and together they discuss a deal to supply plastic to the client of the master. He then hypnotises Rex to only obey him. They then go into the factory floor where the master connects the sphere to one of the machines. Rex then takes the master to the main computer room, but en route they discover Joe, who went to investigate the factory but accidentally gave her position away. The master hypnotises her and she reveals the presence of the doctor and unit's plans. He orders her to return to the unit HQ and informed him that she found nothing unusual at the factory. Meanwhile, Rex is questioned by the factory manager, McDermott, about the order requisitions for the master, who he says he has never heard of. Rex goes to show him the previous order records, but comes over faint when he can't find them. McDermott offers to inform Rex's father, the previous owner, about the situation, but Rex storms off, saying he will bring the master to meet him, and after he leaves, McDermott puts in the call to Farrell Sr. Rex enters one of the production rooms, but is nearly killed by a newly created Auton until it is stopped by the Master. Back at Unit HQ, Benton arrives and informs Yates and the Doctor that they have discovered Philip's car, which had the nesting storage box in it. They tell him to retrieve it, and he arrives back at, with it moments after Joe returns. Benton goes to get bolt cutters to open it, but Joe offers to pick the lock. 
However, the doctor notices something odd about it and realises that it is a bomb. Yates tries to stop Joe, but she knocks him to the ground as she struggles to open the box fully. Episode 2 Benton manages to wrestle Joe away from the box, allowing the doctor to throw it out a window into the river below where it explodes. Yates asks how he knew that it was a bomb, and he says that he recognised Joe's behaviour as being that of someone under hypnotic influence. The doctor takes the motionless Joe to a nearby chair and explains to Yates and Benton that the master's hypnotic abilities are able to overcome a person's nature, but once they are away from him for too long, their minds try to rebel against his influence. He explained that Joe's stillness is due to the mental trauma of her mind trying to comprehend the abhorrent actions she has just done. Together they alter to bring her back around, and after a while she finally comes to, but in a state of distress. She starts to recall some details of her encounter with the master, but is unable to remember the location of the factory. In Rex's office, McDermott confronts the master over his actions in the plant, which have set their production lines back a day's work. The master shows him a sample of what he's been working on and throws a lump of plastic on the ground and after a click of his fingers, it expands to assume the shape of a plastic sofa chair. The master asks him to try it out and when he sits in it, he comments on its cold and clammy nature. Suddenly, the plastic starts to move by itself, enveloping McDermott and suffocating him to death. Rex seems impressed by the plastic, but the master says that he is a way to make it even deadlier and in smaller amounts. A short while later, Farrell Sr. arrives and is saddened at hearing of McDermott's death, but Rex struggles to recall exactly how he died. Father and son then get into an argument about the new direction that Rex and the master are taking the factory. The master tries to use his hypnotism on Farrell Sr., but he is able to resist. The master leaves, commending him on his ability to resist him, and once he is gone, Rex starts to show signs of resisting the master's control. Farrell Sr. thinks that he is sick and offers to take over his duties for the day, but Rex declines. Farrell Sr. then leaves, but says he wants the master gone by tomorrow. Outside, the master goes to Farrell's car and changes the temperature dials in it. He meets him as he leaves and presents a peace offering in the shape of a new doll that he has developed, which resembles a hideous troll. Farrell Sr. refuses it, but the master puts it into the car anyway and watches as he drives off. En route to his house, the doll starts to come alive as a result of the increased heat in the car, but returns to its motionless state when Farrell Sr. turns down the temperature and opens the windows. He arrives home and tells his wife about what happened in the factory and shows her the doll the master gave him, which she too is disgusted by and begs her husband to have Rex get rid of the master. They leave to go visit the coroner's office for a report on McDermott's death, and when they come back, Mrs. Farrell goes to prepare some tea, whilst Farrell Sr. sits down to read the paper. Suddenly, the doll comes to life and attacks Farrell, biting him in the throat, killing him, and then fleeing before Mrs. Farrell returns, who screams in horror at the sight of her dead husband. Back at the doctor's lab, Joe returns from a medical checkup and apologises to the doctor, but he says it wasn't her fault. The brigadier arrives and asks if she is able to remember anything, but she says that she can't, no matter how hard she tries. The doctor says it may come back to her naturally, but the brigadier says that it may not have that time, and says he may eventually have to order a search of all the factories on the list Joe prepared earlier. Yates arrives and says that Benton discovered that a circus was in the area where Philip's car was abandoned. The brigadier prepares to organise a search team to check the circus for any signs of Phillips, but the doctor says that he will go instead, saying that he will be more subtle than the soldiers. He declines Joe's request to accompany him, and he goes with the brigadier to his office for some pictures of Phillips. After they go, Joe bemoans her part in the bombing and her inability to remember her encounter with the master, but Yates tries to placate her, which leads to her to rail against him and the others for treating her like a child. When Yates tells her that she is acting like one and suggests she follow the brigadier's instructions, she gives him a smile and agrees. Back at the factory, Rex says that his father may still interfere in things, but the master tells him that he has matters in hand. 
Rex then asks about the abandonment of Philip's car, saying that it is an easy clue to follow. The master says it is bait for the doctor, who he intends to kill once he arrives there. The doctor arrives at the circus and begins to ask the circus hands if they have seen any signs of Philip's. Unbeknownst to him, Joe has stowed away in Bessie and begins to follow him. As he makes his way through the circus grounds, the doctor recognises the master's TARDIS, but before he can get into it, he is apprehended by Russell and the circus strongman. They take him into Russell's trailer and tie him to a chair for questioning. The doctor tries to offer him a bribe to let him go, and Russell has the strongman take his wallet off him, which he opens to find nothing but a picture of Phillips. The doctor notices that he recognises him, and says that Russell needs to tell them what he knows, lest he get into trouble. Outside, Joe calls the brigadier from a payphone and gives him an update on the situation, and he orders her not to do anything except watch the trailer until he arrives with reinforcements. On her way back to the trailer, she notices Phillips enter the master's TARDIS. The doctor notices Joe's reflection in a mirror and signals for her to do nothing. Russell leaves to go inform the master, and after he leaves, the doctor distracts the strongman long enough for Joe to sneak in and knock him out with a vase. The doctor is initially angry at her for following him, but she cuts him off by informing him about seeing Phillips. As she is untying him, Phillips reports to the master, who orders him to deal with them. He bursts into the trailer as the doctor is explaining the nature of the TARDIS to Joe, and prepares to use a grenade. The doctor tries to break the mental control on him, but the strain is too much, and Phillips rushes outside to get rid of the grenade, but it goes off and kills him. The doctor takes the TARDIS key off his body and enters the TARDIS, and returns a moment later carrying a small bit of machinery with him. Russell and the circus staff appear and start to attack them, but a police car suddenly appears and the two officers get out and rescue them, placing them in the car and then driving off. The Brigadier and Yates see the car pull away just as they arrive and set off after it. Acting on a hunch, the Brigadier has Benton check the police dispatch records and his suspicions are confirmed when Benton says that no squad car was dispatched to the circus. In the fake police car, the Doctor and Joe recover from their assault and thank the police officers for saving them. The Doctor starts to examine the item he took from the TARDIS, and Joe suddenly points out that it looks like they are being driven into a quarry. The Doctor asks to see one of the police officers' ID cards, and when one of them turns around, he suddenly pulls at the officer's face, revealing it to be an Auton. Episode 3 The Doctor strikes at the Autons, causing the car to swerve off the road. Together he and Joe flee as the Autons pursue them, taking cover in a nearby hedge. The Brigadier and Yates arrive, and they split up to try and find them, leaving the driver behind. The doctor calls out a warning to the brigadier as one of the autons fires at him, barely missing him. The brigadier returns fire, but the doctor says that it is useless. The other auton appears near the car and kills the driver. Yates, seeing that his bullets have no effect on the auton, gets into the car and slams into it, sending it tumbling down into the quarry pit. However, it gets back up straight away and begins to climb back up. The doctor and Joe make a break for it, and together with the brigadier, they rush back to the car and flee as the auton fires after them. They report back to Rex, who informs the Master, who seems to be relishing the conflict, saying that the challenge makes the Doctor's eventual demise all the more satisfying. Back at Unit HQ, where the Brigadier gives a rundown of events, stopping for a brief moment to stop the Doctor from entering the TARDIS with the device he stole from the Master's one. The Doctor preempts the Brigadier's speaking points, saying that the Autons with the Master are just a diversionary force preparing for a large-scale nesting invasion. The Brigadier and Yates leave to finish planning the search for the Master, and Joe berates the Doctor for his rudeness to the Brigadier. She then asks about the device he took, and watches as the Doctor attempts to take off in the TARDIS. However, his attempts to leave fails, and he exits the TARDIS, giving it a frustrated kick as smoke billows out from the inside of it. He explains that his own TARDIS is an older model, so the device he took, which is the dematerialization circuit, isn't comparable, but he takes solace in the fact that the Master can no longer leave Earth.
Back at the factory, Rex is examining a plastic flower, but the master tells him to be careful. The master reveals it as their new product, which will be given out as a free sample throughout the area. Rex is then sent with a party of disguised autons to distribute the flowers to the public as a promotional stunt. The autons then try to speed up the process, exceeding the master's directives, but Rex, struggling against his mental conditioning, tells him that they must stick to the plan. In the doctor's lab, he frustratedly tears up the latest reports from the Brigadier's search teams as they yield no news on the master's whereabouts. The Brigadier arrives with a ministry representative named Brownrose, who has come with a list of suspicious debts. The meeting gets off on the wrong foot when Brownrose condescendingly comments on the Brigadier's leadership style, but the doctor comes to his defence, name-dropping Brownrose's superior, which brings the embarrassed ministry representative back to the topic at hand. The only thing linking any of the debts are the names of the first two victims, which are McDermott and Farrell Sr. The doctor and Joe go to visit Farrell's wife, who tells them about the goings-on at the factory, and the doctor realises that the master is the person Rex is working with. She tells him about the doll that Farrell brought home. She tells him that the bizarre fact that the doll was on the radiator when she left the room to make the tea, but after her husband's body was taken away, she found it near a window on the far side of the room. Meanwhile, at the doctor's lab, an engineer fits a newly requisitioned phone with an extra-long flex cord, which the engineer tells the observing Yates is most likely to allow the doctor to move freely whilst talking. The engineer then leaves and goes to where Rex and the Autons are waiting, where he reveals himself to be the master in disguise. The Doctor and Joe return to the lab with the doll, and the Brigadier and Yates watch as he dissects it, only to discover that it's completely plastic. He asks Joe to requisition some equipment, but when she comes back, she says it will take some time to arrive. The Doctor then says he will use the time to investigate the factory, but the Brigadier insists that he will go with him, and as they leave, the Doctor tells Joe to make sure no one touches the doll. After they leave, Yates decides to make some cocoa, and starts up one of the lab's Bunsen burners. He then leaves to get the ingredients, and Joe calls through to the scientific stores for an update on the doctor's order. As she is distracted on the phone, the doll comes to life due to the heat and attacks her. She calls out for help, and Yates returns, who then shoots the doll to pieces. Meanwhile, the doctor and the brigadier find the factory completely empty. They search Rex's office and find one of the plastic flowers, which the doctor says that they can take back for analysis. The doctor notices a large wall safe and begins to work on it whilst the brigadier looks around for more evidence. The doctor manages to open the safe, but is surprised to find an auton inside. He calls out a warning as the auton fires at the brigadier and he shuts the safe again. They return to the lab where Joe and Yates show them the remains of the doll and inform him of the attack. The doctor is initially appalled at the idea of Yates making cocoa in the lab, but he then realises that the doll came to life because of the heat. He then realises that the plastic flowers might have something to do with the other reported deaths. He tells the others to leave so he can analyse it, but before he can do, the phone rings. He answers and discovers the master on the other end, who says that he called to say goodbye, and then uses a small device to activate the flex on the doctor's phone, which wraps itself around him and starts to constrict him to death. Episode 4 The doctor calls out for help, and the brigadier arrives and pulls the flex out from the phone, severing the connection to the master's electronic device. The doctor explains that the flex was imbued with the power of the nestines, meaning that anything made from plastic is a potential weapon. He then starts to examine the plastic flower that they brought back from the factory using a handheld burner to heat it up, but the flower doesn't respond. Meanwhile, the Brigadier has made a breakthrough after realising that a rental slip he found at the factory for a bus seems to coincide with the start of a promotional tour, handing out plastic flowers. Yates brings this news to the Doctor, but he isn't able to give any information on how many flowers were handed out or where they were given out. The Doctor goes back to his analysis and discovers that the flowers seem to have some sort of chemical response code programmed into them, but he can't tell what the code is or how it's activated. 
The Brigadier and Yates arrive and inform the Doctor and Joe that they have located the bus and the Autons at the quarry where they were initially taken to, with the Brigadier saying that he has organised an airstrike on the area. The Doctor asks the Brigadier to observe the Autons instead so he can have time to decipher the code, but the Brigadier says that he can't risk the population being given more flowers. Before they leave, Yates says that the airstrike won't take place for another 90 minutes, and he hands Joe a radio so that they can contact him at a recently set up observation post at the quarry if need be. Joe asks the doctor if he will be unable to decipher the code, since it will most likely be in the native nesting language. The doctor converts the code to a series of pictographs that seem to resemble parts of a human face, but he still can't understand what they mean. He tells Joe to contact the brigadier to delay the airstrike, but when she uses the radio, it activates the flower. The doctor realizes that it responds to shortwave radio frequencies, and the master must be planning to activate them en masse. Joe says the flower is acting like it's looking for something, and the doctor calls out a warning as the flower looks right at her. It fires a film of plastic at her, which completely covers her mouth and nose, cutting off her air supply. The doctor struggles to get it off her, and uses an aerosol to burn it off. The doctor realizes that the other victims must have set off the flowers accidentally. He asks Joe to contact Brown Rose to see if any of them were found at the crime scene, and if shortwave radios were present. Before she leaves, though, he makes sure she's all right. At the quarry site, Benton reports that the RAF have begun preparations for the airstrike, and the Brigadier urges the Doctor to hurry up. Unbeknownst to him, though, the Autons are fully aware of their presence. Rex thinks the Master has abandoned him, and he tries to flee, but he is knocked unconscious by one of the Autons. Back at the Doctor's lab, he discovers that the plastic film is dissolved by carbon dioxide, meaning that the air trapped in the dead person's lungs would make it disappear. Suddenly, the Master appears and holds the Doctor at bay with his strange wand device. The Master says he regrets having to kill such a worthy foe, but he notices the flower on the table, admitting that he was the one that came up with the idea. The Doctor asks how they are to be activated, and he says that a radio signal from the nesting consciousness will activate them. He says that 450,000 flowers have been distributed, and once the recipients of the flowers die, the nesting will launch their invasion force using the ensuing chaos as cover. Joe enters the room and the Doctor tries to use her entrance as a distraction, but the Master doesn't fall for it, and chides the Doctor on not being gracious enough to face his death. The Doctor then plays his trump card and says that if the Master shoots him, he will also destroy his own dematerialization circuit. The Master then threatens Joe and the Doctor reluctantly starts to hand over the circuit, but Joe reveals the airstrike and the Master then decides to take them hostage instead. He forces the Doctor to drive all three of them to the quarry and Yates points out their arrival, forcing the Brigadier and Benton to try and call off the airstrike. All parties wait with bated breath as they hear the sound of the plane approach, but at the last moment it veers off course. Inside the bus, the Doctor and Joe are tied up as the Master informs the Autons that they need to accelerate the invasion plans. The Doctor informs Joe that they are only a few miles from the Beacon Hill facility, and says that they will need to warn the Brigadier. He manages to reach the brake pedals of the bus, and uses the brake lights to signal the Brigadier in Morse code. Once the message is finished, the Brigadier orders Benton to call through to inform the civilian authorities about the flowers, and dispatches Yates to organise a guard at the Beacon Hill facility, whilst he keeps an eye on the coach. Inside the bus, Joe reveals that she has managed to free herself, but the Master orders the bus to leave for Beacon Hill. As the bus approaches the unit blockade, Farrell comes to and tries to wrestle control of the wheel from the Auton driving it. The Doctor and Joe use the distraction as a chance to escape and leave from the swerving vehicle, but Joe injures her ankle after landing. The Master knocks out Farrell and tells the Autons to fend off the soldiers whilst he goes to prepare for the radio signal. The Autons inform him that they can sense the flowers being destroyed, but the Master tells him to carry out his instructions. The Brigadier arrives with Benton as the unit troops engage the Autons, and the Doctor asks him about the flowers. 
Before the brigadier can answer, though, Joe points out the master climbing up the telescope control room, flinging a technician from the stairway onto the ground below. The doctor and brigadier take off in pursuit of the master and discover that he has locked the door. The brigadier shoots off the lock and they enter the room, but the master announces that they are too late as he points to a large ball of white energy forming between the two radio dishes. The doctor points out that the master won't be spared as he has outlived his usefulness, and so the two time lords work to reverse the signal flow to stop the nestings from arriving. They manage to do it in time, and the autons who are on the verge of defeating the unit soldiers collapse to the ground lifelessly. The shock wave caused by the signal reversal throws the doctor and the brigadier to the ground, allowing the master to flee for the bus. They chase after him and watch as he suddenly re-emerges, seemingly to surrender. The doctor warns everyone that it's the trick, and the master suddenly brandishes a gun, but he is killed by Yates before he can get a shot off. The doctor then reaches down to the body and pulls off a mask, revealing it to be Rex who was killed instead, and they are suddenly forced to die for safety as the real master drives the bus through them in an effort to escape. Later at Una HQ, the brigadier reports that the bus was found abandoned, and Joe guesses that the master has fled from Earth. However, the doctor reveals that the dematerialization circuit he gave him was the broken one from his own TARDIS, meaning that the master is now stranded on Earth as well. The doctor says that he will most likely pop up again, and says to Joe that he is looking forward to their next encounter. End of the story. So, as is usual, we will take our jaunty trip down by via bus, maybe, to the <laughs> trivia spot. So, what goodies have you got for us this week? Cool. So, first story of season eight was aired on the 2nd of January, 1971, which is 17 years before my birthday, yeah. and ran until the 23rd of January, 1971. The writer for the story is Robert Holmes. This is story four out of 18 for Bob. We previously just saw his work in The Crotons. Eh. Space Pirates. Eh. Eh. Spearhead. Awesome. Yep. And we'll see his work again in Carnival of Monsters, The Time Warrior, The Ark in Space, Pyramids of Mars, The Brain of Morbius, The Deadly Assassin, The Talons of Wenchang, The Sunmakers, The Ribus Operation, The Power of Kroll, The Caves of Androsony, The Two Doctors, The Mysterious Planet, and The Ultimate Twelve. There's a lot of good there. There's some, personally, there's some naff, but there's some great ones there. I don't think I've actually listed Bob's episodes before. I don't remember having to list no. out that many. No, but so far he's 50-50. Yeah. Yeah. Keep him working with Autons. He's great. <laughs> the director for this story is Barry Letts. So this is the third story out of six to be directed by Barry. We previously saw his work in The Enemy of the World and then again in Inferno. Mm-hmm. We will see his work again in Carnival of Monsters, Planet of the Spiders, and The Android Invasion. Now, an interesting thing about Barry is, I don't know if you noticed this, in the episode, Barry doesn't get a directing credit. I have not noticed this. Hmm. So, the reason for that is Barry was the show's producer at the time. Mm -hmm. And BBC staff regulations prohibited a staff producer from receiving credit for directing. Because fundamentally, you're being paid twice. Yeah. Once to produce and once, and to, once direct. to direct. So one of the ways that producers were discouraged from engaging themselves in directing programs was to say, look, you're not going to be credited for it, so fucking stop doing it. Mm-hmm. Barry, though, got special permission from the head of series and serials to direct one story each season and then 
his name just wouldn't be on it because Barry, like we've discussed before, he was a writer, he was a director, he was a producer, he was an actor. Mm-hmm. Barry was a man of many talents. And I love the fact that even though he doesn't get any on-screen credit for them, he still wanted to direct one story per year himself. Mm-hmm. So working title for this story is so shit. <laughs> it was The Spray of Death. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, that. I don't even know what connotations that brings up, but it's just <laughs> wrong. No, no. Just wrong. What did you think of the unit soldiers' uniforms? So they've actually gone like they're looking like proper military now. Yeah, so this story introduced what will become the unit's standard khaki uniform, right? Much more in line with a traditional military outfit. Yeah. Which replaced their custom beige uniforms of season seven, uh, which Barry apparently referred to as the chocolate, made them look like chocolates. Um, There's also the new laboratory set. The way I think of the season seven uniform is I always, this is going to be so like weird and off the wall, but it's me. So what do you expect? Um, The sound of music. The brown shirts. No, Captain Von Trapp. All right. <laughs> you went the complete wrong fucking direction. <laughs> no, Captain Von Trapp in the Sound of Music, his, he wears a sort of military-esque outfit for most of the movie. And it's a very light grey, somewhat muted. And I always remember a story of Christopher Plummer saying that he'd gone into Salzburg and gotten, you know, much more richer coloured clothes. Mm. He's like, oh, can I not wear these instead? <laughs> and they were like, no. Nope. <laughs> uh, given the fact that you're like a huge sound of music lover. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like your connection with that, that's fine. But like obviously given the setting of the movie and like, oh yeah, they were wearing brownish uniforms, sound of music. I'm like, oh no, that's not a good comparison. Okay. First of all, the color is beige. <laughs> beige. <laughs> I, said bro- I said brownish. It looks brownish. Anyway. Yeah. Trisha's random tangent over. Um, this is one of few stories, very few actually, and the first since the two of the segment where every episode drew in more viewers than the episode that came before it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, <laughs> Yates drove into an auton and knocked him off the side of a cliff. That was obviously a man he bumped into. And it's very clearly a man when you consider the fact that the way the auton keeps trying to like Steady itself as it's falling down the hill? No, going down the hill, yeah, I knew it was a person. Wait. Well, yeah, well, like, yeah, but as in yeah. the, the falling part is a person, yeah. right? So, one of the. So, it wasn't meant to hit him. And it did. He fucking drove a car into a person. <laughs> so, one of the cars accidentally rammed into Terry Walsh, who we're probably going to hear Terry's name a lot in trivia. He was the stunt guy on a lot of John Pertwee stuff and a lot of Tom Baker stuff. And he often did their stunts, so he's like their stand-in for both of them. Yeah. So he was playing the auton policeman. It knocked him off the top of the hill he was standing on. However, because he was able to stand up and continue the scene immediately, and because the fall was so spectacular... They kept it. And that's the version they went with. Terry Walsh is hard as fuck. <laughs> oh, he is. We're going to have some great Terry Walsh stories going forward. Um, there's one particular from... Um, oh, what the fuck is it? 
I have so many of the Cybermen stories in my head. Revenge of the Cybermen? Is that the fourth Doctor one? That's the fourth Doctor one. Yeah, there's a great Terry story from that one as well. I actually think, and no, I guess it, probably, it probably will be a trivia point, but I think Terry plays like the champion of the Prince of Peladon in... Curse I think he Pel- does, yeah. So yeah, Doc gets to fight his own stuntman. But I... <laughs> so like, obviously he had to get a different stuntman. <laughs> so in the scene where the doll thing attacks mm. Joe, right? Barry had intended to film a shot of the doll running across the workbench. However, the guy in the doll suit passed out from being in the costume for so long and the intense heat and so they had to abandon the idea and just for listeners so the way that the doll is done i can't remember the the name of the technique cso cso yeah so the doll is shot in cso uh which is like that you pre-green screen color separation overlay yeah exactly yeah so it, it's and the doll is ugly as fuck but it's also like a really big like kaiju japanese monster suit yeah so imagine shooting this in a I'm going to say a very confined studio. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they abandoned it. In fact, they got some great shots of that. It's fucking creepy as fuck. Oh, it's... it's I, I would probably get into it overall, but in terms of creep factor, this one, I think, is better than Spearhead in terms mm. of creep factor. Mm, maybe, yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about our cast later on. Um, but there's one scene so at the end where Rex is killed in the master's place. When he died, his motionlessness, motionlessness, motionlessness was so convincing that people thought he may have passed out while having the mask over his face. (laughs) But you know what it was? Acting. (laughs) Acting. (laughs) Um... This is actually, this is surprising. I didn't know this because obviously there's a lot of gaps in my Doctor Who watching history as we've discussed before. This is the last we're going to see of the Autons of the Nesting Consciousness until 2005. Yep, absolutely. Which is crazy. If you imagine like it was the season opener for season seven. Mm -hmm. Now it's the season opener for season eight and we don't see it again until the show opener for uh, the revival. 34 years later. Yeah. Not a a trace of them. Uh, we've talked about, is he Doctor Who, D-R dot Who? Is he Doctor Who, D-O-C-T-O-R Who? Is he the Doctor? Um, credits went weird again this time around. Episodes 1 and 2, John Pertwee is credited as D-O-C-T-O-R Who. Mm-hmm. And then 3 and 4 is D-R full stop Who. Like, I don't get how they change this every time. I Surely you just have a template you stick on the fucking end of the episode. <laughs> yeah. Like, how could you get that wrong? Because it was like, we're fucking over budget. Knock off a couple of letters. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, something I didn't know. Well, I think I did know because it was familiar when I was reading it, but I, I couldn't remember it specifically. Is Nicholas Courtney actually suffered an attack of depression during filming. Um, so a lot of his dialogue was reduced hmm. or rewritten to reduce his involvement. Um, so there was a double for a lot of his scenes on location. So there's a lot of arrangements so that the Brigadier is either seen from behind or is obscured by another character or is, you know, over there, you know, out of, out of the way. Um, he was able to return to filming within a couple of days, but I, I didn't know that he, he missed work because of that. 
I, but I, I suppose like because I've only ever seen him like I've seen him in the show and I've seen a few like you know fan convention videos or interviews that mm-hmm. kind of stuff and he seems like you know a very happy individual but I suppose yeah. it goes to show that you're know, smiling on the outside. Oh, yeah, I mean he was absolutely lovely when I met him. Hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, apparently though there is one scene in episode three and I had read this trivia before I watched the episode but my my brain didn't catch it. Uh, where you can tell that it's clearly the double because he's not wearing military socks; he's wearing white socks. <laughs> isn't he though? Isn't he the one like his cane interfered with your shirt or something? No. No. Okay. No. He was the one who accidentally snapped my bra. Gotcha. That's what it was. <laughs> yeah. Purely by accident, he was putting his hand on the chair, and his thumb caught my bra strap. <laughs> Hey, it gives me a story. Fuck it. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> and he was re- and he was very apologetic. It's like when Warwick Davis called me Penny, and I was too polite to correct him. Well, yeah, because he also it was him that yeah. So, oh, this is the story for another day, but we've started yeah. now. Yeah. Patty and I have nicknames for each other, which are Chris and Penny. Yep. The reason for that being when I met Nicholas Courtney, Patty wasn't there, but I got his autograph for Patty. And so I had two photos of Nicholas Courtney as the break. And one was to Paddy. Da, 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 Nicholas Courtney. And he said, and what's your name? And I said, Trish. And he wrote Chris. I still have it. I don't care. Right? It was written to me. And then a couple of months later, Paddy met Warwick Davis, who wrote Trisha, fine. <laughs> and then instead of Paddy wrote Penny. Penny, yep. So it's Trish and Patty and Chris and Penny. <laughs> and when I met Kenny Baker, who played R2 D2, the yeah. same thing. He called me Penny. So I was like, <laughs> cool, that's my name now. This is a good convention tip for people, right? And I have done this at every convention I've gone to since, particularly ones that are really, really busy where people like have a sticky note with your name clearly spelled out in block letters. So they know exactly what to write. Uh, definitely. I agree. So jumping back into what we we're talking about, as supposed to wear tangents about autographs and whatever. In the original script, the master's bomb went off when the doctor tried to open the box by remote control. Mm-hmm. And but it was Terrence that reworked it to give Joe a more prominent role in that scene. I'm going to talk about that scene when we get to talk about Joe, because I have questions. But I- the troll dolls were meant to have a greater role <laughs> in the story. And apparently they would have explained why the master was so interested in the circus. Like, Why did he start with the circus? Originally, the circus would have been used to distribute the toys. So you would have had the dolls being distributed as well through the circus, which makes more sense than him just rocking up to a circus and then never going back there, really. I actually did. See, that was the thing. Was like, I always thought the circus was a very strange starting point. Yeah. Apparently it was meant to be more. Mm. And it was changed. Um, Originally, it was the brigadier who was strangled by the phone cord as he tried to tell the police the truth about the troll dolls. I find it funny. I, I, I would have loved to have seen Nicholas try and act that out. Mm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> I really would. But I like what we got with John. And I love the fact that like the brigadier had left. He'd gone off somewhere. And the doctor's calls for the brigadier, not knowing where he is. 
And it's actually done really cool because the sequence is shot in reverse. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's done really well. And Barry was really great at that kind of stuff. He was fantastic. Yeah. Um, another so, originals. Sorry, uh, and also so is John Lake for being able to act in reverse. <laughs> another original script deviation, the daffodils and the troll dolls would be animated when the temperature reached a certain level. Right, so this is sort of what they used for the troll dolls at the start, but it was meant to be the daffodils were doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. A level that would be obtained due to a somewhat fortuitous oncoming heat wave in Britain. Mm. However, it was kind of felt that, that would be a bit illogical. And like the fact that like the master would have to plan out his takeover based on, you know, the weather. Yeah, uh, it was decided to use a broadcast signal. So, okay, oh, they tested it with the heat, but then they went with the broadcast signal as the as the final thing. The master also originally used an auton disguised as himself as a decoy. Although the fact that he used Rex, I think, is it's such a gut punch. And yeah. we'll get to that in a while. There's a lot of trivia on this one. Yeah. Uh, the well, story it's, it's originally kind of, very significant, yeah. very significant yeah. trivia. The story originally ended with the doctor avowing that the master would stay on earth until I destroy him or he destroys me. And the head of BBC serials, Ronnie Marsh, was like, nope, that makes him way too bloodthirsty. Nope, that, no. Uh, So it was changed to the doctor saying that he was looking forward to their next encounter. And I have thoughts on that. So do I. (laughs) Uh, Which the people who wrote this on the TARDIS wiki also clearly had thoughts on it. And their thoughts are light up mine. <laughs> Bob Holmes uh, claimed that for the basics of the serial, they were all around him. So there was a detergent company giving away flowers and he remembered the warnings about plastic bags. You know, don't leave plastic bags around children. Mm-hmm. And those inflatable plastic chairs and apparently ugly troll dolls were all the rage at the time. So he basically took all of these things he saw in his everyday life and went, Doctor Who! (laughs) (laughs) It's a staple. (laughs) Yeah. Barry requests... So there was a sequence where Yates yells to the Doctor, we've got him now. Um, And Barry requests that they reshoot it because the performance was a little bit over the top. (laughs) And apparently Richard Franklin was like, thank you. (laughs) I'm very grateful for doing that again. (laughs) I, I again, I have thoughts about Richard Franklin's performance in this. So, so do I. I, I, I will get to him in a while. So let's go on to our cast, right? Um, and start wrapping up this trivia section, which has gone on way longer than usual. So this is the first story. So we mentioned Sergeant Benton last mm-hmm. week. This is the first story in which he was given an annual contract rather than being what they call a day player, where he was just you know, credited for individual stories. So this is the start of Sergeant John Benton's annual contract which is surprising like seeing as how he's kind of been very prominent in, in the last season i'd say you know uh he's been there but i can understand that he like he was more sort of being brought in as mm. filler for a bit it wasn't really until inferno that he was you know a proper uh, character like and they probably saw in inferno how well he did and said you know what let's fucking keep him around I'm just, um, I'm such a mark for uh, Benton. I'm like, no, like immediately he should have been hired straight away, goddammit, from episode one. Oh, I agree. But like, I can understand why. We have a new member of UNIT. 
mm-hmm. Captain Mike Yates, who is played by the previously mentioned Richard Franklin. Uh, this is Mike's first Doctor Who acting credit. Um, he will go on to play Mike until Planet of the Spiders. So pretty much from now until when John leaves. Yep. He did come back in the 20th anniversary special, The Five Doctors. And he also came back in the 30th anniversary adventure, Dimensions in Time. He also wrote The Killing Stone, which was a spin-off novel featuring Mike Yates, and it was released as an audiobook. He's contributed to a number of other audio stories, so he's been very well involved in the sort of Doctor Who franchise after he left. His other television credits include Crossroads, The Saint, Like Seven, Emmerdale. He was an engineer in Rogue One, which I didn't capture, and now I want to watch Rogue One again to try and find him. And his first ever television role was in Dixon of Doc Green. Oh. Which is a show we have mentioned a lot before. Speaking of Yenton, Yenton Benton and Yates. Yeah. I remember. That's a pairing I never. Well, actually, I, I say that's a pairing I never thought of. That's a pairing a lot of people, people. really like. I. So I remember before I like was really able to start watching Who, thanks to UK TV Gold, I read. I think like four Doctor Who books. Two were based on just completely random stories. One was with the fourth Doctor and one was with the sixth Doctor. Hmm. But I remember I got novelizations of a story that's going to happen in this season. Um, it was called The Doomsday Machine, but it's The Colony in Space is the actual story hmm. name. And also Day of the Daleks. Hmm. And even then I always remembered I preferred Benton T. Yates. So do I. Yeah. And like, and like look... We'll we'll get into it over time, like, and I I I remember liking Mike a bit, but not as much as I love Benton. So we'll see how the second time around goes. Yeah. As Rex, we have Michael Wisher. So this is the third Doctor Who appearance for Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, he did some uncredited voice work in the Seeds of Death, and he was also in the Ambassadors of Death. He was the news reporter. News reporter. And yeah. you wouldn't, re- you can't recognize him. Completely no, okay. I, I, com- I completely missed it until you pointed that out to me the last time. Yep. In total, Michael appeared in 10 stories, either providing voices or actually appearing on screen himself. So we'll see or hear him again in Carnival of Monsters, Frontier in Space, Planet of the Daleks, Death of the Daleks, Genesis of the Daleks. He, he does the voice of Daleks. Yep. Revenge of the Cybermen and Planet of Evil. That's, that, that is like, again, a really, really good repertoire, uh, like resume for Doctor Who. Yeah. For like really good appearances. And also, I know that we mentioned it last week when we were talking about Benton, but in the wartime fan made movie, he appears mm. as, as flashbacks of Benton's father. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. that already last week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but now we Mike- know who he is. <laughs> yeah. Michael's non Who acting credits include. A TV miniseries of Alice in Wonderland where he played the Cheshire Cat. Now, I'm that, talk... That's him. Right? This also featured Elizabeth Sladen as the Dormouse, who would later go on to play Sarah Jane. And it actually brought back Barry Letts and Terence Dix, but their roles were reversed, with Dix being producer and Barry being the writer. I looked for it on Amazon because I'm now kind of curious and I want to get it. And mm-hmm. the only copy you could get was. It didn't deliver to Ireland. I was like, God damn you. So if anyone has a copy of the TV miniseries Alice in Wonderland, which has 
Michael Wisher as the Cheshire Cat and Elizabeth Sladen as the Dormouse, contact me because I want this. Um, his other credits include Airline, Dixon of Doc Green, Zed Cars, Adventure Weekly, and The Newcomers. Michael passed away in 1995. As the master, our new Time Lord, we have Roger Delgado. He was, this is the thing, he was born Roger Caesar Marius Bernard de, de Delgado Torres Castillo de Roberto. That's a name. It, it's a name and a half. That's it's like four amazing. names, really. Uh, it's that, that's an amazing name. <laughs> that's an amazing name. Um, this is the first of eight appearances for Robert as the master. So we're going to see him again. Mind of Evil, Claws of Axos, Colony in Space, The Demons, The Sea Devils, The Time Monster, and Frontier in Space. Robert had requested, um, and we'll talk about this more when the character leaves. I wanted to include it here in case we, I forget it. Robert had requested that the master story come to an end in the final game. Which really sort of plays on the Moriarty Holmes yeah. dynamic. Because he was having trouble finding other work. Because other directors thought that he was full time for Doctor Who. Because he was on it so often. Well, to be fair, like the first five stories you called out there are this season. Yeah. So they thought he was full time. He was having really bad trouble finding other work. And so he, he basically asked for the character to leave. Uh, reportedly the character would have been killed off to free up Robert to do other work. Sadly, Delgado passed away um, before that could happen. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the master still lives on today in Sash One. Yep. He worked extensively on British stage and TV and film, including The Avengers, Danger Man, The Saint, The Power Game, Randall Hopkirk Deceased, Sergeant Cork, Sherlock Holmes, The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, the Assassination Bureau, The Stranglers of Bombay, The Terror of Tongs, and The Mummy Shroud. And that one random scene in Star that he's in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Robert died on location in Turkey whilst he was shooting his first comedy role in the French miniseries The Bell of Tibet. He was killed along with two film technicians when their chauffeur-driven car came off the road and plunged into a ravine. As such, he has the sad distinction of being the first major Doctor Who actor to die. And it was Robert's death had a major impact on the cast and Mm. particularly on John. And we'll get to this when we talk about John's final season. But it was Roger's death that prompted John to to leave, basically. Like, that's one thing that's abundant over this, this period in Doctor Who is that everyone is incredibly close. Oh, yeah. Lastly, we have our new companion. That was horribly depressing. Um, Lastly, we have our new companion, Joe Grant, played by Casey Manning. So, interesting thing about Casey. (laughs) Casey is notoriously short-sighted. Yeah. And the first day on set, or on location, rather, because they do all the filming on location first. First day on location, what did they do? They took away her glasses because Joe doesn't wear glasses. Nope. So when they're escaping from the autumn policeman in the quarry. Now, there's two stories going around, right? One is that she tripped and sprained her ankle. And the second is that she ran straight into a tree and knocked herself unconscious. I've heard that story. <laughs> yeah. Um, regardless of which one it was, and I'm... 
I think it may have actually been both because there's one point where we see Joe fall over. I think that may have actually just been Katie herself falling over. Hmm. Um, two things that happened though. The first is that one of the production assistants, Nicholas John, took her to the hospital and to try and lighten the mood, joked with her about how the producer, the producer would have to replace her. Oh no, sure, you went and got yourself in the hospital on your first day, they're going to have to replace you now. She took it so seriously that when John found out he when John Pertwee found out, he gave out to that producer for upsetting her. The second thing is, and this is something I love that this is where this came from. Yeah. A common thing with the doctor now is the doctor holds their companion's hand while they're running. Yeah. That came because Katie was short sighted and John didn't want her to fall over. He like as as we're seeing now, and obviously new tri- and trivia as time go along, John adored Katie Manning. Oh, he did like a hundred and ten percent. But I love that that like that's such a a common, it's an iconic thing. Like it's almost like take my hand if you want to live, right? For yeah. Doctor Who, and it came because Katie's short sighted and John didn't want her to fall over. <laughs> like that's adorable. Um, Kate will go on to appear as Joe in a total of fifteen stories. She'll also return to the role in the Sarah Jane Adventure story, Death of the Doctor, and she's done a lot of work with Big Finish. Now, there was a little bit of controversy, would you call that? In 1977, um, she posed for a glamour magazine called Girl Illustrated, nude, with an original Dalek prop. Apparently she laughed it off, saying, like, you'd have to put me under a microscope to see anything. Right. Um, and apparently John Pertwee's reaction was saying, Oh, typical Katie. Um, she did say that it went over like a cup of <laughs> it went over like a cup of cold sick. <laughs> is how she describes it. And like I've I've heard this before, like, and I actually remember thinking because like one part of it that was kind of pointed out was that a lot of complaints seem to come from doctor who fans mm. and I, I just remember thinking so it's okay for her to be like ostensibly at the time the token sexy female character to draw in male viewership mm. but when she goes to I won't say the extreme of it, but when she does reveal a bit more, then it's like, oh, no, 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 no. And it's like, choose a fucking happy medium, you know? Yeah, I mean, obviously that magazine is not for children. No. Do you know? Uh, So if your children saw her in that magazine, that makes you a bad parent, not her a bad person. And also that shop needs higher shelves. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. Katie's non-who work includes Sophie's Sophie Task Force, Target, Casualty, Glorious House, and just because it looks like an interesting title, The Miraculous Melops 2. <laughs> I th- Katie is Joe. Like, yeah, she is. She's such a <laughs> she <cute>. really is. Because <laughs> like, uh, Joe is like, you know, the girl of the time. Like she's yeah. um, she, kind of like Polly, mm. but obviously we're going to see her in her own time a small bit more. And Katie is no different. Like, even now, Katie is still, like, just this slightly scatterbrained, but sweet and adoring part. Like, I've never met her. All I've seen is just rakes of interviews. She mm. does a lot of in- uh, a lot of uh, interviews on the Wartime DVD. Yeah. And, yeah, she's just lovely. She also, like, um, after Elizabeth Sladen passed away, um, Katie did a lot of 
you know, the specials that the BBC done. Mm. She, you know, she was interviewed a lot for that. Um, and she's done a lot of interviews over the, like, anytime they do anything about John Pertwee's era, they're always talking to Katie. <laughs> because even though Caroline John was a companion of that era and so was Elizabeth Sladen, Katie's there the longest. Yeah. And she's sort of the default John yeah. Pertwee companion that a lot of people think of. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. It gets, it is Katie and John. Yeah. Or Joe and John. Or Joe and Duck. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So, very long trivia section there. <laughs> I, th- I think you're trying to muscle in on my your summary time. <laughs> well, you've been having all these like seven episode stints to just yeah. natter away. So yeah. I wanted to take some time back to, to, to just to just bore the shit out of people. <laughs> so, guys, we have a right to the character discussion. So, as always, we have the Doctor, we have the companions. Uh, so we'll have Joe, the Brigadier, Yates. I'm disgusted that there's no Benton. No, he's not. <laughs> he's we'll in just say like... no. Benton did good. Yeah, Benton did good. Benton, he won ben... a lot of it. <laughs> Benton, Benton, good boy. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, I'll see. I feel like I should have put it in the trivia, but this is start. This story has it's the first instance of one of my favorite things. Uh, trap one, Greyhound, Greyhound mm. to trap one. It's the call sign between the unit crowd. It's like Greyhound uh, trap one to Greyhound, or whatever way it goes around. I, I do it. find it interesting that HQ is called Trap One. I wonder where that yeah. name came from. A like, Greyhound makes sense. Yeah, but you know that's where Greyhounds come from. Traps. Uh, I suppose you think about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't really call it slip one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, we have Joe the Brig and Yates. Mm-hmm. We also have a prominent character. No, I put him as a prominent character of Farrell. Yeah, Rex. Uh, yeah, sorry, Rex, because Farrell Senior is there for like one episode, mm-hmm. and then we have the villains of the Autons and the Master. Yep. So the Doctor, and clearly from the trivia spot we both have feelings about the doctor in this one so who goes first i'll go first okay i don't like him in this story Hmm. he's a bit of a dick yeah um what the hell was his initial interaction with joe first of all there's no need to call people names yeah, so when Joel um, uses the fire extinguisher, he calls her a ham-fisted bun vendor because yeah. he thinks that she's the tea lady. Yeah, so why do you assume she's the tea lady exactly? Hmm. What the hell is that? And also, just by the fact that she, just by looking at her and the fact that she used a fire extinguisher in what she thought was a fire, mm-hmm. he assumes that she is not fit to... Pardon, she is not fit to be his assistant. Yeah. And without even speaking to her properly, assumes she is not a scientist or has no scientific background. And like she says what? that she, she says that she took um, science A levels. A levels. And he goes, Of course you did. And like just like the way he says it, he says like so. A condescending it's, yeah, exactly. And then later on he treats her like a child or a lost puppy. Now hmm. I'll I'll get to Joe's childlikeness when we talk about Joe. But he doesn't treat her very well at all. And while he does have his usual, sometimes friendly, sometimes antagonistic relationship with the Brig, hmm. 
and he does have one like the great moment where he stood up for unit i thought that was fantastic oh yeah not, not just unit he just stood up for the brigadier yeah just like you know his leadership is like exemplary it's fantastic yeah but his it's the beginning and the end right so his interactions with joe from the off and his thing with the master right so at the end big reveal it wasn't the master it was rex mm-hmm. and the master makes off in the bus and the doctor smirks kind of going you sly devil yeah a man just fucking died and then later on he says he's looking forward to meeting him again dude people died yeah like i so i i didn't like that um because so I, i'm i'm in very much agreement with you for everything you said like his handling of joe from when she enters up until it's revealed, it reminds me of Doc Bill's early interactions with Ian and Barbara. Mm. Say, like, from like, an unearthly child, Daleks, and up until the end of Edge. Yeah. Yeah, so in that arc, very reminiscent of that. But also, when the Doctor gave out to Jamie, when Jamie res- thought he was rescuing him yep. in the Web of Fear. And against a case of, if they don't know that everything's okay, how the fuck are they supposed to react when they see something bad happening? Yeah. It's also this inverse of Troughton's relationship with Zoe. Where, Hmm. you know, there's slight antagonism there, you know, sort of being a bit demeaning to her intelligence. But this is sort of a case of like, she's like, oh, I've done cryptography and escapology and whatever. Clearly, Joe has a lot of hobbies. Yep. Right? <laughs> Fine. Um, and he just sort of like rolls his eyes like, sure you have. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. And it's like, don't be such a dick. And like, his thing with the master. No, I I have to say it first of all, right? The chemistry between Roger Delgado and John Perkins. Oh, it's brilliant. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. It's, it's so good. Like, oh my God. Like, I, I, I love the fact that there is a Holmes-esque and Moriarty-esque relationship mm. going on here. It's great. But, no, I haven't read a lot of Sherlock Holmes, even though the fucking big book is here beside me and I'm slowly making my way through it. Mm. I don't ever really recall Holmes being like happy at the idea of people are dying by Moriarty's hands. No. So here, it's like, it's not a game. Mm. And even if you go back to say, like, okay, the first Doctor and the meddling monk. Mm. The first Doctor did kind of act very impishly and it's almost like it was a, g- a game between the two of them. Mm. But that was because he always had the upper hand. Yeah. He never, like, and the, it's not the monk's MO to put innocence in danger. No. So it was it was kind of a battle of wits. The, and then the, the monk wasn't killing anybody directly. He no. was trying to orchestrate historic events. Yeah, no, to be fair, he was about to fire fucking missiles into a Viking fleet, but... Here, neither here nor there. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't actually do it. Mm. But and then you've got the second doctor and the war chief. Yeah. Now again, it's two renegades. Very, but the doctor isn't relishing the idea of all these soldiers dying as part mm. of a game. Whereas here, it's like, okay, I get that he'll want to fucking match wits, but there's a fucking 
stream of corpses behind this one meeting. Yeah, it's like, you know, you sort of get this sort of defensive thing where it's like mm. the first Avengers movie. Yeah. Where they're having the scene in the lab where like they're first all like turn on each other and whatever. And you know, they're like, oh, why are you building hydro weapons? Mm-hmm. And Fury is like, because of him pointing at Thor and the fact that Thor and Loki used an Earth town mm-hmm. as their private battleground. Yeah. And that's essentially what the doctor's saying he's looking forward to here. Mm-hmm. He's looking forward to doing battle with the master again. They're both stranded on Earth. So Earth is going to be their battleground. Yeah. And that rubs me the wrong way. Like, I get that the head of serials didn't want him to be like, you know, it's going to be him or me. Like, either he'll have to kill me or I'll have to kill him. I actually would have preferred that hmm. to this because it means that at least the doctor knows that this this has to end. This can't be allowed to continue. Because, like, that would have been re- very reminiscent of a point I was about to make. Where is the doctor from the end of the Daleks master plan? It's yeah. like, yo, what a waste. All this debt, what a waste. Where is that doctor? Yeah, because at least then where it's like it's got to be one or two of us, which was it's either the Daleks or it's us. Yeah. So where is that one? Like the little smirk when he drives away, it's almost like he's happy he escaped. Yeah. I was like, dude, he literally like Yates shot an innocent man, and you're just sat there smiling. Mm-hmm. What the? F- like if Liz was there, she would have smacked him over the fucking head. Yeah. I, I think, like, or even Liz would have probably gone, you know, if this is the way it's going to be, I want no part of it, you know? Yeah. Um, The only positives for me, for the Doctor, are, okay, yeah, he defended the brig. And mm. we get to see Science Doctor, which I yep. love. And we get to see Detective Doctor, which I also love. Mm. Yeah, I think, like, his interactions with Unit were very good. Mm-hmm. Like I said, his chemistry with Roger Delgado was... Oh, it's just beautiful. It's It's, fantastic. It's It's brilliant. You can totally understand why people love the two of them together so much. I'm... Now, I'm just going solely from memory here, okay? Mm. But I think that this will be the best chemistry between a master and the doctor we'll ever see. That's including everyone else. I think so, too. I like Ten and... um, Ten and... uh, uh, Tenant and Sims was great. I actually uh, like Jodie and Sasha Dewan. They're they're good as well, as is Michelle Gomez and Peter Capaldi. Yeah. But nothing is nothing, nothing feels nothing feels as natural as mm. this. This this is like the time that you and I RP that we were hating each other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's actually on the so this season is available on that Blu-ray collector's set, which I have. Yeah. And it has the behind the sofa thing where they have various people from Doctor Who watching the episode, and they actually have Sasha Dewan watching this. Nice. With, oh, I've forgotten her name. You're one who plays Ronnie in Sarah Jane Adventures because there are a couple that I didn't oh, know. Oh, Man, Mandy. No, it's not Mandy. No, no, that's that's no. the eyes. I'll, 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 I'll find her there. Yeah. Um, they have them watching this. And you can tell how much he's just loving watching this other master. Like, we're getting off topic, but like, um, yeah, I I think it's great. I think their dynamic is fantastic. They're amazing. Uh, Anish. Uh, Anish Mahindra. Yeah. 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 So, given that we have a couple of new characters in the companion bracket, we have Joe mm-hmm. the Brigadier and Yates. 
do we want to do the Brigadier Yates and Joe? Or I think so, yeah. Yeah, okay. Brig. Okay. I I love his new uniform. Yeah. I do. It, I'm weak for his new uniform in many different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Why did he sign off on storing the consciousness in this museum? Did he need the funding? Did he need the publicity and the public interest? So this goes back to a point from Dr. Hundasalurians. Mm. Unit signed off on this. Yeah. Now, I know that they said that the Brigadier's signature is on it, mm. but is he being told to sign off on it, or is this his idea? Yeah, see, it is, I have a funding question. Yeah. Because why is he? why are they all piling into Yates' car? Where is his Jeep gone? Yeah. Literally, the entire story when they go to rector to rescue, like initially, like oh, they're going undercover in their full military uniforms mm-hmm. in this tiny blue car. But then, like they go off, like at the end, <laughs> in the like, did did your new uniforms cost you that much money that you had to give up your jeep? Possibly. Benton has a jeep, but this is my jeep. <laughs> I brought this from home. <laughs> did he forget to pay make the payments like where did his jeep go <laughs> I only had two payments left did Liz take it <laughs> Do you know, did Liz get it in the separation she got po- the jeep <laughs> possibly <laughs> it's my severance package motherfuckers <laughs> but yeah okay that, that was that was <laughs> I, I can't help but notice these things though. No, but seriously though. Um, one of the things I love about this story is like he has some great moments, he has some mm. funny moments, some brave moments, whatever. What I love is when he sort of turns on Yates and it's kind of like, I'm not being taken out of the field just yet. Which yeah. I love because we see this younger military character come in, you know, a, an officer, not like Benton, who's a a, a non com. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, is Mike meant to be replacing the break? And we get very clearly from the break that no, he's not. No. Um, he's not going to be taken out of the field by the younger officer. Brigadier Alistair Gordon Lesper Stewart leads from the front. Yeah. And I love that he has cemented here that that's not changing. You know, Yates isn't replacing the break. No, not a hope. Um, and I do like that, and I like I liked that scene. I thought it was good. I thought it was a great thing. I look, I love the Brigadier in this. Apart from, look, the we don't know who signed off on this, so I'm not <laughs> going to put it at his feet, you know, innocent until proven guilty. Um, I love the Brigadier in this because I think he's just, this is, again, quintessential Brigadier. Mm. Decisive leadership from the front, man of action in every sense of the word. Mm. And one thing that I love about this is that he states that his and he firmly states it that his duty is to the people of Great Britain at this stage, mm. right? And the and like he was like, no, the airstrike will go ahead as planned. But even at the observation post, he's like, come on, doctor, give me a give me a reason. Give me to an call outlook. Out. Yeah, give yeah. me an out to do this. And like I love that because it's almost like ambassadors, mm. which is like the brigadier. Like I. We talked about Silurians at Lent and we mm. talked about that decision and that ending that is forever burned into my memory because of this wonderful mm. character and show and sequences. But it feels like everything the Brigadier has done since then is like almost like learning and trying to make up for that. 
even if he himself wasn't directly the one making that decision it's like he's trying to bend the rules as much as possible Mm. that's the way it comes across to me yeah the way i see it is that if you take the silurians he hid what he was doing yeah here he's like nope this is what i'm doing this is why i'm doing it i have to do this Mm -hmm. you know there is no there is no if stands or what's about it but he's being honest about it and he's giving the doctor time to come up with an alternative the brigadier kind of reminds you of like those like quintus you know those stories about like um you know when like like in ireland in world war Two, you mm. know when for some reason all of our like any um raf pilots that were shot down over here mm. like they had to be brought up to the border where they would be interned but like you know, for some reason, whenever they got like within a mile of the border, the driver would get out and stretch his legs for like fifteen minutes, and then come back to find the car mysteriously empty. Oh yeah, you know, I, or like you know, Germans are like, yeah, just, just go over there. Yeah, just, yeah, go over there. Right. Like you can, you can have it's the freedom fine. of the you can have the freedom of the town, just but make sure to come back at night time. Yeah, but uh, but like I, the brigadier just sometimes he comes across like that. He's like he's the kind of guy that would be like, doctor, I'm very angry with you. I have to take you to prison. But first, I'm going to fill out all this paperwork. Yeah, yeah, um, and it won't be legal until it gets to the end of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so no, I, I think this is a, like this is a great story for the brigadier. Mm. My my forward summation of the brigadier in this story: all round good egg. Yep, he's an all round good egg. He is. No, Yates. An all round bad egg. No, that's that's a lie. That's, that's yeah, no. that's a bit excessive. I, I like don't he... like Mike Yates. I feel like he's trying to be the new Jimmy. Yeah. Whatever. What happened to Jimmy? I, I feel like the Brigadier sometimes waking, wakes up and I go screaming, Jimmy, Jimmy. I do have a funny feeling that Jimmy died and that's why he's not as friendly with people. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of history, right? So mm-hmm. I only knew Mike from, originally from Invasion of the Dinosaurs and then Planet of the Spiders. Yeah. I didn't like him in either of those. Mm-hmm. I'd seen scenes of him with Joe and the Doctor, like, from this time period. I have never been a big fan of Mike. However, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, we'll discuss that in a couple of months, his character goes through a bit of stuff. Mm-hmm. And in Planet of the Spiders, he's still kind of recovering from that stuff. Yeah. So I didn't want to for- to base my opinion 100% on those. I've now watched his first episode. And Mike, you're not... You're not great, dude. Like... You're not Steven, but you're not far fucking off. With Mike, right, I get this notion. And again, look, comparing him to Benton. No, it's yeah. two different things, officer and non-com. Mm. Both reporting to the same man. But sometimes I get the feeling that Mike treats Unit like, whether it's a stepping stone to for on a career path, mm. Or he doesn't realize that unit isn't quite the regular army, so things yeah. operate differently. But I think he acts like it is the regular army, and like he's been, like there's so many kind of things that are like you know kind of being built up for him. Like, is he going to be the brigadier, the brigadier, the protege for the brigadier? Which I like in, in terms of the officer side of things, I mm-hmm. feel like he is. It's not getting off to the greatest start. Um, possible romantic lead for joe because of his 
obvious <laughs> attraction to her. Although he uh, treats her like a child. Yeah. Never date I'm, a guy who treats you like a child. That I don't like. Because uh, he, he, she's like, they're treating me like a child. Well, maybe if you stopped acting like one. And it's like, I was like, no, they are treating her like a child. Like, that, that's yeah. a very... Yeah, d- uh, dude, like, you know, have you not paid attention? Did you not just see what... She- also, she kicked your ass. Mm. Yeah, fucking <laughs> hit him to the ground. like, And it wasn't a ball shot. She got him right in the solar plexus, so she knows mm. what she's doing. Um, While he is, like, you know, he has some action moments, you know, like he drives the car into the Auton and he's there, you know, gun blazing, all this type of stuff. It feels like it feels forced. It doesn't feel natural. Yeah. So my things with Mike is a he's incredibly condescending to Joe, mm. incredibly condescending. Right. Mm. We'll talk about her in a second and the fact that like nepotism played a part in her getting her job. But she is still a member of unit, and the brigadier clearly has to put up with her. Do you know? And you can mm. kind of tell that's kind of where the brigadier is at with her at the moment. But you also tell he kind of like the brigadier sort of like when she like is sharing all the information, the brigadier's kind of like, okay, cool. You know, she's okay, let's see how this goes. You know, he doesn't want her in the field. And I, I can understand why, but mm-hmm. yeah, whatever. But Mike is so condescending to her, like, oh, like, why don't you just do what the brigadier says? Do you know? Like, you're not a grown woman at all, you know, who has your own agency and who has qualifications and who you know, even if she doesn't feel like she earned her position, that you should have the right to show it, do you know? He's so condescending. The other thing is, I don't like the violence with the eights. Okay, he hits the guy with the car. Mm. That is understandable, right? But though we never see blood on Doctor Who when people get shot, he shot who he thought was the master like five fucking times, including once in the back. After already shooting him in the front. Hmm. And then gloated about it. Like, what the hell? So, I'll, I'll address that point, okay? We've been, he has been led to believe that the Master is a very, very dangerous individual. And he's seen it. Like, he's seen, like, the effects of what the Master is like. And he sees the Master pull a gun and he shoots him. Now, there's the whole thing of making sure the job is done. But, I all, I never like when someone takes satisfaction. Like, when essentially a good guy is taking satisfaction in the death of someone like that. Mm. And nor does he show remorse for, re- like... No, when he realized it was Rex, there's no like, oh my god, yeah. what did I do? Yeah. But also, I wasn't aware that Unit had an open shoot to kill order. When it comes to people surrendering or anything like that, I I would thought like obviously in direct combat, it's yeah. Yeah, if it's yourself. a shootout. Yeah. Like we've seen shootout scenes before, but again, they're shooting like I've never seen. A scene before of unit knowing they've hit someone continuing to shoot them mm-hmm. that has never happened before yeah do you know particularly someone who looks for all intents and purposes human hmm. you know it's different like okay you're going up against an auton you're going to shoot him full of bullets whatever but you you know that's it, it's a slightly different thing yeah like your man was falling over and he kept shooting. Mm-hmm. I was like, you got him, Yates. 
calm the fuck down. And the fact that we don't see like scripts go off and we don't see fake blood or anything, it makes it difficult to follow that as a viewer. But like, it's very obvious that he sh- like his shot hits at least four times. Yeah. I feel like a Sam Peckinpah movie where there would just be slow motions of blood everywhere. <laughs> yeah, like I said, Mike bothered me in the stories I'd seen him in before. Hmm. I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt because those stories are very specific, do you know? And like his storyline in them was very specific. I am curious to see how he develops, mm-hmm. but I'm not liking him so far. He's yeah. not quite at Steven level, but he's a damn sight fucking close. It'll be his competency which compares him. Mm. So, Joe. Hmm. Now, I'm I'm not going to lie. I did have a few moments where I was like, I want Liz back, please. I had lots of moments where I wanted Liz hmm. back, which isn't fair. No, it's it's not it's not Joe's fault. And it's not, obviously, Kay's fault or anything no. like that. It's just, like, okay, so we mentioned, and I, I, I used the line in the summary. Hmm. Joe, uh, sorry, Liz has written out the show by going back to Cambridge for a more fulfilling job than, and she says it to the Brigadier, the doctor just wants someone to pass him test tubes and tell him how brilliant and clever he is. Liz never did that. Liz never did that. Liz never did that. Yeah. Okay, we need to talk about that, right? Okay. Because it feeds into how Terence and Barry created the character of Joe. Mm-hmm. That's who they wanted the character to be. Yeah. That was never who Liz was. It's never who we saw the Doctor wanting her to be mm-hmm. or needing her to be. And this is where I say that like, the way they describe it is both a compliment and a kick in the fucking teeth. Yeah. Because it's a compliment to Liz that they're like, you know, if the character, if the role of the assistant was just to hand test tubes and tell the to- Doctor he's great, Liz is so far beyond that it's not even funny. Mm-hmm. But it also implies that that's all she ever did. Which is untrue. And we talked about this in our rambling about Liz. And yeah. we've talked about it for the last four weeks. And like, it, it highlights like that there is there is an element of narcissism. Narcissism to the Doctor. And yeah. we've seen it throughout all of them. Like we've seen it, you know, in First Doctor where he says, you know, I'm so constantly outwishing my enemies that I sometimes forget the gentle artificial cuffs. And we've, we've talked at length about the second. Yeah. <laughs> we've seen the second Doctor's huge the, ego. Huge ego and sense of, like, you know, he has to be the smartest person in the room. Whereas with this, it it felt like, you know, the, the third Doctor really enjoyed having someone that was like, of a maturity, of a very sound scientific background, and yes, he kind of took for granted at times, but I never, but I don't think he ever treated her, you know, as like a gopher. No, and I, I strongly disagree with Barry and Terence on what they felt the companion should be. They have both said that the companion should be the character, the audience insert, who's there to ask questions. Who the fuck was that character up until now? Jamie, a bit, maybe. But like to reduce the character to just that, I think it really undermine and like the worst thing is that when you have the brig described that's why Liz left, you're setting up that that's all Joe is going to be. Mm-hmm. Which isn't which is doing Joe a discredit. Yeah. Now, I do have a couple of things about Joe though. Poor thing is a little bit clumsy. Mm-hmm. That's partially Katie's fault. Since when does lock picking 
mean having the most humongous set of keys on the planet and just so having to have just so happening to have the right key to fit the right lock I would have loved if she said I'll do it and she took out like a lock picking kit she takes out a huge bunch of keys that would make Hagrid jealous and she just so happens to have the right key to open that lock yeah you don't even get the sense it's like a skeleton key or something like that it's just she has the key to the lock it's like that's not being a lockpick. That's being a hoarder. Yeah. <laughs> There's a difference between the two. And it's, yeah, because like it's, it, it is a very large jumble of keys. Like yeah, like that's crazy. Yeah, no. She couldn't sneak up on anybody with the sound of the keys jingling in her pocket. Like no, Jesus, no, and not a hope. She does act like a petulant child. Mm-hmm. Because she's being treated like a child. Yeah. And in fairness, I kind of got the sense from the way the Brig describes her that a relative got her the job Mm -hmm. to kind of give her something to do. Mm -hmm. You get the sense that like she has a relative in the ministry or something, you know, maybe a sir something or other or a lord something or other. And this was like we need something for joe to do she's got all these random fucking interests she needs a fucking job okay well unit can make use of those interests whatever and you get the sense that she's trying to prove herself i think in one of the novelizations it's like she's got an uncle in the military or something like that Mm. yeah so like she's clearly trying to prove herself Mm -hmm. but they're treating her like a child which just makes her want to prove herself more which unfortunately comes across like her acting like a petulant child yeah and it's like it's this never ending if you, if you want her to stop acting like a child stop treating her like one mm-hmm. but if they if, if she wants them to stop treating her like a child she stop acting like one That's, one of you be the adult yeah <laughs> but like i and the thing is that she is very in her appearance in this one she is very childlike because mm. like she's wearing civvy clothes like she's wearing yeah. her uh she's got a very sweet ador- adorable face yeah like mm-hmm. you can't deny that but like she's kind of portrayed as a bit of a klutz like you know because yeah. like like when she's spying on the master like she's hiding behind a load of bins and then she gets up and she just happens to fucking clash into a load of bin lids yeah. that are right in front of her so again uh, yeah but like, i think that's maybe kind of joe con- actually does need glasses maybe <laughs> but like it's kind of contradictory to some stuff that we see later on like because she's the one that says like well it's an alien code how will you be able to read it this is the thing, right? Yeah. I think Joe would be a great assistant. Mm-hmm. Can you leave her to run experiments independently like Liz? No. no. But Liz wasn't his assistant. Or shouldn't have been in there. Mm-hmm. She clearly is taking over part of Benton's job by collecting the morning notices, reading through all the morning reports, briefing the doctor on everything that's going on, requisitioning all of his materials, developing good relationships with the science sourcing team to get him everything he needs. She'll be a good assistant. Mm-hmm. If that's what he needs, she's doing really well at it. Yeah. Do you know? And she's asking important questions and she's, you know, making, you know, maybe sometimes random suggestions, mm. but they're relevant. She would actually be a very good assistant. Is she Liz Shaw? No. But Liz Shaw shouldn't have been an assistant either. So, you know. Um, You've sort of commented before that 
Joe is the sort of start of the something for the dads. Mm. I don't know if I entirely believe that. Um, at least not at the beginning. Because while Joe is very pretty, if you compare it to some of the late or something for the dad's characters. Yeah. Or if you compare her back to Liz, whose skirt, as we mentioned, got shorter mm. and shorter and shorter with each of her stories. Joe is presented, like I said, very childlike. Um, she's wearing civilian clothing. There's she's wearing trousers, like bell bottoms, do you know? Long, like cardigan flowy thing. Um so I'm not sure if I'm seeing this something for the dads quite yet. It'll be it'll be like I think over the course of the next couple of stories. Because like I do have memories of certain outfits by her and they're like, Jesus, you're giving Liz a race uh, run for her money in terms of the shortness, you know? Yeah. But uh, I'm just saying, just because you've made that comment before, mm-hmm. I was going to say that right now I'm not seeing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but oh, we'll, yeah, we'll yeah. see how it, how it progresses. Yeah. Cool. So we have the prominent character of Rex. Now, would you consider Rex to be a villain or a prominent character? Prominent character because he's mind controlled. Yes. I would have liked to have seen a And he clearly more... tries to reverse everything he's done when when his brain yeah. wakes up. I now one thing is that I think I would have liked to have seen a bit more of like mental rebellion when he learns out that he like because the master just says, Oh, I've dealt with your father. Mm. But if he was to find out that his father was killed, mm. I think I'd want to see either that acknowledged and having the rebellion re, like the mental rebellion then. Um because I think like his trying to break away from the control was very inconsistent in its pacing. Mm. But when you have two other villains in the Nestine and the Master in a four-part story, mm. I sub- and as well you've got Joe to introduce and Yates to introduce, I feel like there's always so much screen time that could have been given to him in relation yeah. to that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think about Rex himself, though, is separate to mind-controlled Rex. Hmm. Rex, in general, has serious daddy issues. Oh, yeah. And a massive inferiority complex stemming from said daddy issues. Hmm. And I love, I almost love the fact that Michael Wisher is so great, right? Mm -hmm. When the Master tries to control Farrell Sr. and it Mm -hmm. doesn't work, you can guys that Rex kind of cocks his head a little bit in sort of a, it didn't work on him, mm-hmm. but it worked on me. And you're like, yeah, you, you can see from Rex individually why it was so easy for the master to take control of him. Yeah. And as well, like the way McDermott handles Rex, he goes like, look, I'll call your dad. And it's like, you know, like, stop it. You know, I'm in fucking control here. Like, yeah. And he, tr- <laughs> sorry, he treats Rex like the way he treated him when he was a little kid almost yeah. you know so yeah like yeah I, I can see daddy issues there I will say terrible way for the fucking guy to die like oh Jesus Christ like not only yeah it's fucking gloating right fucking mm-hmm. ignore that but being mind controlled to walk out into an open field with armed soldiers with a mask on mm-hmm. and getting shot to shit and his poor mother yeah who has just lost her husband, or mm-hmm. first lost a close family friend, mm-hmm. then lost her husband, and has now lost her son. Yeah. And the doctor wants to meet the master again and do battle of wits with him again. Fuck you, Doc John. <laughs> yep. You inconsiderate prick. 
not a good one for you. <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, then we have the Autons and the Master. So Autons first. Yeah. I think these Autons are creepier. Oh, way creepier. The, like, under mask. Like the Auton mm-hmm. blank face thing is creepy as hell. But also they talk. Yep. They didn't talk last time. No, these ones talk and they've got a very robotic way of speaking, which is weird because they're made from plastic. <laughs> um, like... What make what really kind of adds to the creep factor of the autons or even the, the nesting in general mm. is that anything plastic is now a weapon, which is really fucking spooky. Because, mm. like, this is well, a, anything plastic could be a weapon, yeah, anything plastic could be a weapon. Like, this is a prime example of how Classic Who made the ordinary thing feel scary, mm. and like a very long time before Blink did it with the moving statues. Yeah, like, like if you think about, it, like, I mean, one of the things that that knew who was done, I I always have this rule of like, the episode with the black cubes. Yeah, and it's like, well, that's just fucking weird. That's mm. not every day. No, do you know where like, everyone's sitting and looking at a black cube, or you know, with the ghosts in the the end of season two. Mm. Yeah, or whatever. Where it's not every day. Yeah, it's whereas daffodils. There's a day called Daffodil Day where people yeah. give out free plastic daffodils. Mm-hmm. Or and plastic. I love daffodils, and this story made me slightly not like daffodils anymore. Yeah, plastic dolls. Even like I remember like the the sequence with the plastic chair. Mm. No, it looks a small bit silly because the guy is deliberately trying to slide <laughs> off it in order to make it look like it's enveloping him. But the concept of it is terrifying. Oh, yeah. And I remember my cousin had like one of those types mm. of chairs. I had I remember, one too. Yeah, I remember like I we were kind of arsed around and I fell off it and it landed on top of my face. Mm. And like, you know, it's a small bit of plastic, but like those first couple of seconds where you're like trying to scramble it off you. Because mm. like the same thing happened to me once I went swimming and I got trapped underneath someone's uh, double eight inflatable or yeah. eight, inflatable eight. And I was trying to find the pocket of air to climb back up through. Mm. So it's like, when, and when Joe gets that small little film of plastic put over her face, which I think is an ingenious way to kill oh, people. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, perfect crime. <laughs> it's like stabbing someone with an icicle. <laughs> mm. um, it just adds, like, as I said before, like the shop dummies are iconic mm. from Spearhead. But this, it just makes the whole thing really fucking spookier. And, like, the, the Autons are dressed like these very garish, like, bright outfits with big plastic you know mm. fake heads but the fact that they're fighting the unit soldiers and kicking their ass i know it might seem silly but it actually just adds to the creepiness factor you know mm. now the guys with the big heads yeah now you know this about me other people don't it's a it's a weird i have weird phobias right one of my weird phobias is i do not like people in mascot suits getting close to my person mm. there's a reason not going into it yeah. i don't like them there is one exception and one exception only and that is disneyland yeah but only for disney characters in disneyland, disneyland. they're yeah. only safe in disneyland because that's where they live mm. so for me they're creepy just in general <laughs> They really are. They're just fucking haunting, like. 
Never mind the fact that they're this like alien consciousness. I don't like people in mascot suits in general. <laughs> I don't like them. Like I remember we were doing a kickoff thing for this like reward and recognition scheme and work. Mm-hmm. And to kick it off, one of the girls arranged a rental of a Mario and Luigi costume. Mm. Like a thing that you climb into. Do you know? And I was like, stay the fuck away from me. And they're like, oh, but I was like, nope. And they were coming around, giving out sweets, and I put a customer on hold and disappeared down to the device lab until they left. I was like, nope. Not having it. Get away from me. Yeah. So I never would have been killed by the killer daffodil. Because even though I love daffodils, I wouldn't take one from a creepy fucking mascot thing. Yep. So I would have been fine. <laughs> and that's how they didn't get you. Turns out it was your Funko Pop collection all along. <laughs> what I like about the Autons in this is mm-hmm. they're given their own agency. Hmm. Um, they had their own agency in Spearhead and they still retain that agency here. Mm-hmm. It's very clear that they are not slaves to the master. No. They have no qualms about, and like be that the nesting consciousness itself, or the individual autons. They have, they'll wait around for him, sure. But if he takes too long, they're off. They're gone. They're doing it themselves. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like you know the the trope of like you know when people like you know they summon a demon and the demon just kills them and it's like well, what the fuck were you expecting? I'm a demon. <laughs> <laughs> But I suppose, speaking of the man himself. Mm. The master. Holmes says he's Moriarty. Bond has blowfilled. I have my hatred of alien societies wearing the same clothing. And now the doctor I have the apparently guys in mascot suits. Yep. Well, that's a phobia. This is just an irrational fucking hatred. Uh, and now the doctor has the master. Oh, the master's so interesting as a character. Um, I think the master... For the most part, there was one thing I thought was stupid. Which is? The fact that he turned around and helped the doctor at the end with the nesting. What the fuck was that? It was not necessary for the story. The, the, like, the entire story, like you could have had the doctor figuring this out, this out and the master knocks over the brigadier. Or like the doctor's like, brigadier, help me. And forget about him you need to help me with this whatever and you can still have the ending ending be the same it it doesn't it seems so out of character <laughs> that he would have helped as like really this guy who thinks like five steps ahead didn't consider this no right so it's a very fair point and the only counter arguments i can come up with are the doctor laid down the thing the the statement that if they take over the world, hmm. you're you're gone. You're excuse me. You're toast. No, it's clear that two scientists or someone with at least working in knowledge of electronics needed to reverse this signal. Hmm. So that's why he decided to help. And also, like you know, this that thing was like you know. Um, what's the point of being king on the world? But it's the king, you're the king of an ash heap type thing. Mm. So, 
I think it was weighing up the odds. And again, in terms of not, you know, planning five steps ahead, you're always going to be like assuming you're the smartest person in the room until someone actually kind of goes, well, actually, did you factor this in? Yeah, I, don't, I just seemed very out of character for him. Mm-hmm. I don't think he would have stayed to help regardless. I think if they... See, that's a, it's a very rushed sequence. I'll admit that. So I think if there was a bit more back and forth between the two of them, it, or it, if like if the nesting communicated and said you know, we will destroy you all and the hmm. and the master is like see I told you doctor and the nesting say something and the doctor is like they mean you as well yeah and like the master realizes he's being double crossed mm-hmm. yeah but it's not a double cross it's a why oh, am an idiot yeah I did a deal with the devil I doubt it and I was like no that doesn't line up with the man we've seen for the last four episodes no. Um, the man we've seen for the last four episodes always does his research. He chose to come to Earth mm-hmm. at this particular point in this particular time. He chose the people he was going to interact with. He did his research on them. He did his research on how to get into unit. He knew exactly what he was doing and he had a workaround for every situation. Mm. He had the inflatable chair thing for McDermott. He had the troll doll for Farrell Sr. He had the phone cable for the doctor. He had everything worked out. It's like, oh, Joe broke the thing. Oh, that's okay. It was just one option I had. It wasn't the only one. Yeah. It's fine. That like that type of villain is great. And that's the Moriarty-ness. And that's where I find the whole like, what do you mean they're gonna kill me as well? Ah, fuck it. Like, it's like what the hell? <laughs> no, I will admit like that. I can see the logic in him doing it, but I think the sequence is very rushed. I think the, I think the resolution to it is rushed. Yeah, I think here's okay. The invasion, mm-hmm. right? Your man, yeah. what's his face? Um, Vaughn. Vaughn's turn around in the invasion. This same type of thing done much much better. Yeah. Now, granted, over a longer stretch of time. But Vaughn's turnaround mm-hmm. is done much better. Oh yeah, absolutely. But no, that's what I'm saying. If you like, can't you, do it justice, don't do it at do all. It. Yeah. Um. God, that that was such a good. He was such an amazing character. He really was. Um. Yeah, but like, no. Again, I love, I love the masters. Again, you know, just like this, this, this maniacal. I don't know, if it's maniacal, but it's just like this. It kind of reminds me a, a small bit of the Joker. Because the jo- like, he he does come across as this lunatic, but he's always got a plan. Like there's mm. always something in the works, and that's what I feel with the master. You can never be a hundred percent confident that you have the upper hand on him. And one thing that I think again lends credence to the character is Roger Delgado. Oh yeah, because he just oozes effortless charisma, mm. and his hypnotism is so believable because. Like, he's a guy that can go from looking very, very stern to very, very charming, very, like, just a click of a finger, you know, mm. which he does quite a bit in this story. Uh, his, as I said, his chemistry with uh, John is amazing. Like, that standoff they have in the lab where he's like, he's holding his, it's an his unnamed, screwdriver. it's not a sonic screwdriver, it's a tissue compressor. Mm which it's not named until later on, but that's the thing that he used to shrink the man in the lunchbox. I'll come back to that in a bit. 
yeah basically it just miniaturizes the person's body but it kills them as a result it's like the it's like uh, the pin particle but without the mm. suit um so with that like and he's just there he's holding almost like a cigar and he's just like like oh the, the dialogue between the two of them it's and yes i do not like the way that the doctor is looking forward to them butting heads again however as a fan I cannot wait to see the master in the show again mm. because he's such a fascinating villain. Oh yeah. Oh no, I completely agree. Yeah. I completely agree. So we have reached the end of again, another a, a landmark landmark story for Dr. Who because introducing a brand new character or in Joe, sorry, brand new companion and introduced a long-standing, very famous villain in The Master. Yeah, a lot of people see season eight as like a soft reboot of Pertwee's era. Yeah. They've changed out the companion, they've redone the unit a bit, they've introduced another unit character, they've introduced a new villain. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people kind of see it as like a soft reboot. Yeah. Um, and I can understand that they even have the same opening villain. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also we... Those. <laughs> and also we have another Time Lord in that that sequence is weird be, because like he just appears in midair and then he floats to the platform. That the I get the sense that on. his TARDIS materialized slightly off the platform, so yeah. the chameleon circuit made it look like the sky. Possibly. And then he just moved it closer. Yeah. And it's, stepped off. Yeah, it's weird. And uh, then stepped back in. But he yeah. pops in and out, which is yeah. which is weird. Although if your TARDIS was going to like how would you have someone materialise in the middle of the sky? They would just appear out of fuck off nowhere. Mm-hmm. With a popping noise, apparently. His TARDIS comes with sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> Pop. <laughs> so yeah. I I like for this for me, right, the best performances in this whole story. Are Roger Delgado and Nick Courtney. Yeah, Michael Wisher is good as well. Mm-hmm. Like, and he's very good at playing tortured. Very good at it. Joe, however, hasn't quite hit the mark for me yet. She hasn't made a huge impact. Mm. I'm not liking Yates, and again, it isn't just like you know the the Benton fanboy in me. It's like he's shown me nothing that has kind of really enamored me or him to me. And I think the Doctor is, I think the Doctor is a is a prick in this story. From st- from start to finish, like he's got some good start stuff in the middle in terms of being a detective and being a scientist, but he's not a very good with interacting with his uh, colleagues in this one outside of your know, defending the brigadier. But this kind of goes back to, oh, there was a Trouton story that I thought he was absolutely fucking the pits in. I can't remember which one it was. Was it Wheel in Space? Yes, thank you. Yes, wheel. This is like this is the this is the worst I have seen the Doctor since the wheel in space. Mm. I am looking forward to seeing how things go, mm. because now that we know the Master is on Earth, so he's probably going to turn back up again. I wonder when. Mm. <laughs> um, so for me, and again, the Autons. Uh, one thing, as I said before multiple times, I love when a recurring enemy comes back with a brand new element to it. Mm. So. I enjoyed a lot about this story yeah. and I've given it a 3.75. Okay. I'm a little bit lower. Okay. Not by much though. <laughs> I was tempted to go a lot lower and then I, and then I, I <laughs> no, um, look, 
it's a good opener but it's not mm-hmm. great mm-hmm. and for me personally it doesn't compare to spearhead as a season opener no no so he, what i will clarify what i will definitely agree with you on okay is i think the autons are better oh yeah oh yeah yeah no no are better than this but the story as a whole yeah. no doesn't yeah, compare no. to spearhead spearhead yeah. is the better story Story as a whole does not compare to Spearhead as a mm-hmm. season opener, as an introduction of new characters, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I'll do the things I liked first, because you mm-hmm. seem to like that last, like, <laughs> last time. The things I liked. The brig was great. Um, I loved the new look of unit, with the mm-hmm. exception of the missing Jeep. They're looking more professional. Um, they're not wearing the Captain Von Trapp jumpsuits anymore. Mm-hmm. The story as a whole was good. Um, the Autons were fantastic they were fantastic Roger Delgado's acting was brilliant and while Jo didn't make a big impact she is interesting and I yeah. want to see her do more because like I said when we are talking about her I think Jo would make a very good assistant mm-hmm. do you know she is not a peer no scientifically speaking but she would make a very good assistant in keeping the doctor on track I think so yeah. I'm interested to see how that will develop. Things I don't like. First and foremost, I hate circuses. Mm-hmm. Now, I said I watched the Blu-ray and there was the behind the sofa thing and Katie Manning was one of the people on it and she was saying how John Pertwee had to practically hold her back because those animals in cages, mm-hmm. they were real and they were there. Those elephants, they were real and they were there. Mm-hmm. It was the 70s. It was a different time. I fucking hate circuses. Right? Because also circuses have clowns. They have, they have animals in captivity and clowns. Mm-hmm. There is nothing about a circus I like. Separate from that though. I don't think I don't like the ending. I don't think the masters turn about against the Nestine. I don't think it was given enough time to develop properly. Mm-hmm. I think it was incredibly rushed and it came across as out of character. I don't like the way the doctor was so happy that the master escaped and looking forward to seeing him again. I don't like how Gates Gates. I don't like how Yates was so gung ho in she's shooting be, them. She's coming for you, Crusher. Yeah. <laughs> also, what was with the tiny man in the lunchbox? You just explained it, right? Yeah. That was never explained in the episode. We see a tiny man in a lunchbox and is never mentioned ever again. <laughs> Is the tiny man dead? We assume so. (laughs) No one fucking knows. He's just lying in a lunchbox. There's never any talk about making him proper sized again. How the fuck have they explained to his family that he is a tiny man in a lunchbox? It's it's a lot more emphatic in later stories when when that device is used. Because like, again, it was, they used the CSO. Yeah, called separation overlay. Yeah. Yeah, they used that to show the actual actor sitting down in the lunchbox or whatever the case may be. Later on, it's just a small little plastic figure. Oh, jeez. But they never explain it. It is literally the most, like, I was waiting going, what the Mm. fuck is that? Like, I knew this story was about plastic. Mm -hmm. I knew that already. Yeah. Well, like, like, what the hell is that? No, sorry, the prop is a small plastic figure. But what it essentially is, as I said, is for anyone that's seen the movie Ant-Man, it's the whole concept of shrinking the body down but without a pressure regulation suit to keep the person alive. This so is shrink fine. Down, this, yeah. is, this is fine, right? Yeah. None of this was in the episode, though. I feel like we should just 
you know, do her own cut of Terror of the Autons. And when that happens, Paddy will just speak and explain what happens, doing his best John Pertwee impression. That was never explained. We don't know what that blinky light was. I thought it was a sonic screwdriver because I didn't know. I actually also, um, it's because I am currently in the process of watching The Mind of Evil. Mm. I love John Pertwee. I, I love him. He's acting. It's great. But when he's trying to emphasize pain, his eyes do this weird kind of like bug out motion that looks like he's getting a rectal exam. He has <laughs> got to lay off that because it, it does kind of take you out at the moment a small bit. But yeah, so I, I didn't like that. I didn't like the random plot point that went fuck off. Like of all the random plot points that go fuck off nowhere, tiny man in a lunchbox, really random, goes fuck off. No, never even mentioned. Hmm. They open the lunchbox, they gasp. And then they close the lunchbox. <laughs> you saw nothing. <laughs> um, and lastly, I don't like how they explained Liz leaving. Yeah. I would have much rather they said, Liz went back to Cambridge because you don't really need her and she has work there that needs her attention. Simple as. Liz went back to Cambridge because she doesn't want to be part of a paramilitary organization. Mm-hmm. Liz went back to Cambridge because we only had her for a short while and Cambridge wouldn't release her any longer since you're here as scientific advisor. Unit HQ in Geneva wouldn't pay for two scientific advisors. I could only keep one of you. And Liz wanted to leave anyway. There are so many other ways to explain Liz leaving that doesn't undermine the entirety of the previous season. Liz killed a man. She's in jail now. Yeah. Or my personal favorite. Listen, the brig want to have a relationship and they can't while she's reporting to him. Mm-hmm. So, so she, she left. Ha- so she left and changed her name to Doris. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so all of that together, and I said the autons were fantastic. The mm. idea behind the daffodils was brilliant. The master was fantastic. Blah blah blah. I gave it a three point five. I nearly gave it a three, and then I was like, mm. "No, you're being a bit." The Liz thing was rubbing me the wrong way and the mm. Mike thing and the Doctor thing were kind of overshadowing everything else. Yeah. But when I was doing up, pardon, doing up my notes last night, I was like, no, do you know what? I'm being I'm being overly critical. Mm. I have a lot of things I like about this story. Yeah. Um. So 3.5. I think as a season opener, it's fine. Does it compare to Spearhead? No. no. Are no. the Autons better? Yes. yes, but Spearhead is a better story overall. Yeah, no, completely agree. And it's, it's such a shame now, as you said, that this is going to be the last we see the Autons for 30 fucking four years. Yeah, and from what I remember of 2005, they're back to Spearhead level, which is weird. But less terrifying because of the way that mannequins were developed Yeah, in the interim, like... Uh, it's we'll, we'll get into it in I think about maybe two years time. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no, thereabouts. That is story, if I remember correctly, one fifty six where we see them. Mm. Yeah. Wow. So That's crazy. We'll, yeah, we'll we'll get there soon. <laughs> um. So, in terms of season openers, where is that on the chart? Let's have a look. See, let me pull up. Usually, I have my list up, and I forgot this time. Uh, so we have. Okay, first of all, you gave it a three point seven five. 
Mm-hmm. And I gave it a 3.5. Okay. Uh, so Spearhead was 4.5 for you, 4.75 for me. I love fucking Spearhead. Mm-hmm. Um, Dominators was 2.5. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tomb of the Cybermen was 4 and 4.5. Mm-hmm. Uh, Smugglers was 4 and 3.75. Galaxy 4 was 2.5. Planet of Giants was 3. It's kind of middle of the pack. Cool. It's kind of that. weird. I, I find it weird that we give Tomb of the Cybermen so much higher than this. But I'm not remembering it very well. My brain is confusing it with the Ice Warriors. And so that kicks off Season 8. We have a new companion, a new villain. Join us next week when we will join the Doctor, Joe and Unit in their next adventure in the Mind of Evil. Until then, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>